Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Pixis. Pixis, the name you trust for PTSA, is now offering ultrasonic and pressure-based liquid level sensing for your systems. I know you've had the experience where you've walked into one of your accounts only to find that you have fed too little or too much of your valuable product. When you're able to add online liquid level management to your account, you will never be surprised at the amount fed again. And at your critical locations, you can't afford to feed anything less than the optimal dosage of your water treatment products. With Pixis, you know that your end results are going to be accurate because of their best-in-class turbidity and color-compensating capabilities. Visit them online by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash Pixis, that's P-Y-X-I-S, to see their full line of water treatment products. Folks, you owe it to yourself and your customers to make sure you have the best working in your systems. Merry Christmas, everyone, and welcome to the Water Treater's favorite podcast, Scaling Up H2O. Folks, if you have not gotten all your Christmas shopping accomplished yet, well, you have one week left. And if you're like me and you do most of that through Amazon, folks, they're starting to back up. So it's starting to get pretty scary whether they're going to get your gifts to your recipients in time. So go ahead and take time for that if that's on your list. You know, I know that I have personally learned a lot this year. I'm sure you're the same way. You've learned a lot this year. Some good, some bad. But then again, I really look at learning. It's never bad. Now, some of the things we've had to learn during the year 2020 has been a little rough for us to get through. But let's face it, we got through it, we're getting through it, and we are learning from it. As long as we can do that, we are making ourselves better. We're making our companies better. I always like to take December to look back at the year and just Think about all the things that I learned, but then also think, am I aligning myself in the areas that I need to be in so I am forcing myself to learn new things? And this year, the answer is absolutely positively yes. When I look back at all of the things that I learned this year, I learned a tremendous amount by being involved in a mastermind. Now, you all know that I'm a member of a separate mastermind outside of the Rising Tide Mastermind. So that puts me into contact with people that I might not ever have their insight about business with. But as I mentioned, I'm also a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind, and that allows me to talk with other water treaters to get their knowledge, to figure out what we don't know we don't know, to help us figure out blind spots, and probably most important, to help keep us all accountable that we are growing as individuals. I've learned so much through being part of the Rising Tide Mastermind for the past year. I've learned a lot from my personal reading. And I want to tell you a secret. The Mastermind was responsible for several books that I read this year, and I was being held accountable by the members of the Mastermind that I would get those books read. 
And they're probably not books that I would have read on my own. So I needed that constant nudge to make sure that I read them. But I also have a personal reading list. I like to read so many books every year. And I normally write that on my goal sheet and I check off the number of books that I've read in particular categories. And folks, there's so much knowledge out there in books. I've never read a book saying that I'm gonna copy this entire book and get this done in my company or get this done in my life. I always look for that one nugget that if I can put into practice, it changes everything else. Or to borrow from Tim Ferriss, it's that domino that gets all the other ones moving. So I'm really pleased with how I've checked things off on my personal reading list, but I've also learned from the organizations that I belong to. We talk a lot about the Association of Water Technologies on this show, but there's so many other organizations out there. Their whole purpose is to get information to you, their end user. And folks, if you're not taking advantage of that, I implore you to do so. They're trying to find information. They're trying to figure out what they need to distribute as far as information. So you can be involved in that, but then you can also devour all of that information that they have so you can become better at whatever your goal is to become better at. I also have learned so much from my peers. I try to align myself with people that are going to, one, help me become better, but that's a two-way street. I also want to help them become better as well. So when you get involved in a relationship with Trace Blackmore, you just have to expect that. I'm going to demand that you get better, and I'm going to demand that you help me get better. And I will tell you that the friends that I have, I have had for years. And I think it's because we have that general expectation that we're better as friends and we make each other better people than if we were not friends. So I hope you have some relationships in your life like that, that you are making sure that you both are learning throughout each and every year. And then it wouldn't be 2020 if I did not mention COVID. You know, I got to check off living through a pandemic from my bucket list. Actually, no, living through a pandemic was never on my bucket list, but knowing me, I'll probably write it on my bucket list because that would allow me to check it off. And those of you that know me, you pretty much know that that's a true statement. And yes, Scaling Up Nation, I actually do have a bucket list. I said the words and yes, so a little segue. I don't know if you've ever done improv training. If you ever go to a class to do improv comedy and what they do is they set a scene up for you and somebody just starts acting out something. It's the most ridiculous thing that they can come up with. And then what you do is you agree to it and then you improve on it. So the words you use when you take over the scene is and yes, and then you do whatever ridiculous thing you want to add to the scene, and you keep doing that through the cast of comedians. Folks, I bring this up because we're talking about learning, and it just popped into my head, so that's also why I'm bringing it up. If you have never gone to a comedy class and you are involved in sales, 
you are missing an incredible opportunity. It's extremely awkward at first, but you are going to learn things about how to handle situations that are awkward because you cannot do improv comedy without the entire thing being awkward. It will help you so much with your sales training. So if you haven't done that, I am going to urge you to do that. Maybe that's a new goal on 2021. Now, if you don't have a bucket list, I'm going to encourage you to write one. Maybe another goal for 2021 is to have a bucket list. Let's face it, life is very short and we do want to make sure we get done in life what we want to get done within our lifetime. And if we're not keeping score on that, well, are we really doing that? So I encourage everybody that I coach to create their own bucket list and make it a goal that every single year you're going to start taking items off of your bucket list. You're also going to add items to your bucket list because you're going to learn that you want to do new things, but now you have a way to keep score. I know retirement is something that's on everybody's bucket list. Everybody aspires to retire. You know, sometimes that means making sure our investments are properly planned, uh, getting our finances in order, all the different houses, so to speak, that we have to get in order in order to retire. That's something we all have to do. However, if you are a business owner, a water treatment company business owner, this is especially true to you. Trust me, I know I fit in this category. The thing that I've got going for me is I'm not looking to retire for some time. So I've got plenty of time to put things in order. And I like to think that I have things in order pretty well, but you don't know what you don't know. And that's why. I have invited our guest today to help us out with thinking, what are the things that we need to know when it comes to the second act of our water treatment company? My lab partner today is Michael Wardy. Michael, thanks for joining us on Scaling Up H2O. And how are you today? I'm doing great, Trace. How are you doing? I am doing wonderfully. Thank you for asking. And uh, before we get started, do you mind telling the Scaling Up Nation a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess even before there, uh, just thank you for having me on the show today. Congratulations on the Ray Bomb Water Technologist of the Year Award. Obviously, very well deserved. Um, and just I continue to be amazed at kind of the Scaling Up Nation and the folks that you bring on the show. Just the incredible learnings from Legionella to leadership to industrial water week kind of detective h2o things uh, i just think it's a an incredible learning opportunity within the space well thank you for that i really i really appreciate that that means a lot of course so yeah just a little introduction to myself uh, i'm a midwestern guy I, I grew up uh just outside of kansas city and uh have always kind of had this vision of getting involved in the world of infrastructure, right? It's this kind of unseen, underappreciated aspect of our, of our lives that kind of drives everything. Um, and so uh, I guess my, actually my, my first step into this world um, that led me to water was actually in the energy space. So I spent the first several years of my career, I actually bought myself a one-way ticket and moved to China. I speak Chinese and, and I decided, you know, where we're better to kind of see that the future of how we're going to treat infrastructure than in a place that 
is spending billions on billions every year on upgrading of, of energy and water infrastructure. So I spent three years, three and a half years in, in Shanghai working in the world of solar panel manufacturing. And so this is, you know, about 80% of the world's solar panels are, are made in China nowadays. And so it was a really interesting time. Uh, my clients were typically Europeans and, and, and U.S. companies looking to, to enter into this energy market and trying to figure out how to do so. And so it was, it was kind of a fascinating time in kind of renewable energy and in terms of like a, a new industrialization. And yet I, I kind of kept coming back as I was over there. And this is, I think, something that folks have come to underappreciate in the U.S. And when they go abroad, they, they begin to appreciate it. But is how we have kind of failed to appreciate our clean water, our sufficient water on a day-to-day basis. And so I always kind of talk about my, you know, what is my come to water moment? And that really took place in just in my apartment in Shanghai, where you know I'd go to work during the day and 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 work on very large energy projects, and then I'd go back to my apartment and I wouldn't be able to drink water out of the tap. Or um, you know, my, my first time when I went into my in my newest apartment in Shanghai, I turned on the uh, the kitchen faucet and a black sludge came out. Right, and so that is something that is uh, both very telling, but also kind of just you know in my kind of entrepreneurial mind and it gave rise to this question of like how can i fix this problem and then actually in my last summer there there was some there were some news articles about 40,000 dead diseased pigs were pushed into the shanghai water supply you you begin to think to yourself like this is something that clearly there's a disconnect where you know obviously energy is a big part of our lives and 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 all that money and, and time and effort needs to go into it but we seem to have failed to remember appropriately that you know, water is the one irreplaceable thing on earth, where there, there is no substitute. And so, you know, at the time, I, I just said, you know, I'm going to kind of come back to the States. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out how to kind of play a role in this next generation of water infrastructure and, and just started to kind of diving into the world of, you know, where are there gaps in the industry? Where are there, is it technology? Is it policy? Is it finance? And really think through how I could you know, obviously make a living, but also kind of drive change in this space. So I kind of came back to the States. I started off working for a, a membrane company out of Boston called Oasis Water that was doing a forward osmosis. You know, it's kind of like the reverse of reverse osmosis process focused on very brackish industrial wastewaters. I think like fracking fluid or coal ash blowdown plants where doing typical treatment isn't isn't something that is cost effective and and so you need to figure out a way you know how do we kind of meet our in, environmental discharge standards and then i went and, and worked for a couple firms more on the development side of, of new decentralized wastewater or groundwater treatment processes and so at that firm i was i was leading our effort to kind of upgrade and decentralize the water infrastructure grid and so typically what that looked like was, you know, in San Francisco, for example, new buildings over 250,000 square feet require 100% on-site wastewater reuse. I was deploying systems to capture wastewater produced in high-rise residential buildings or office buildings or kind of mixed-use towers, capturing that, treating it with a membrane bioreactor, kind of similar technology, and then redistributing that for toilet flushing or irrigation or cooling towers. That's kind of really where I got my first glimpse and taste uh, into the world of, of, of the water treater world, where I was doing that. And then in Los Angeles, was working on a couple of different projects 
focused on taking groundwater that was leaking into subterranean basements or parking lots, treating that, and then reusing that for cooling towers. I think the difference between those two applications is in San Francisco, that was more of a, a stick than a carrot, right? That, that's where the government was saying, you know, you have to do this because we have water shortages and we, we need to figure out kind of what our, our water portfolio looks like for the next 20, 50 years. But in Los Angeles, the goal, and I think this is similar to how a lot of folks are, are kind of treating this in, in the space, is this was a cost-saving measure for the end client where we were essentially reducing their sewer discharge bills, reducing scale and corrosion on the cooling towers while providing them kind of a, a good service that, that dealt with kind of their, these, uh, this water leakage in their basements. So that's, uh, I guess that's a, a brief background to myself. I find that fascinating. So water that they were getting leaked into their basements, they didn't want it anyway, and you were able to send it up to their process water where they could use it and they didn't have to pay for it. They didn't have to pay for it. And, and frankly, it was, a, it was a nuisance charge that they had to, to pay for their sewer bills to discharge it. So it was kind of a um, double benefit there. Very interesting. Well, you definitely have an impressive resume when it comes to water treatment, but you're doing something a little bit different now. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I was working on this decentralized wastewater work uh, for several years. And actually kind of the highlight that I forgot to mention um, was uh, after Hurricane Harvey hit Houston in 2017, I actually got called down with with uh, actually my now business partner. Um, we took about 18 wastewater operators down to Houston because their wastewater treatment plants were offline, 10 were offline, and two were underwater. And really try and help them think through how do we create a m- more resilient, flexible, decentralized wastewater treatment infrastructure for uh, for Houston, which uh, unfortunately has kind of had several hundred year floods over the past decade. And so, uh, you know, that was kind of this, as I was doing that work and, and thinking about the next generation of this more flexible, resilient infrastructure that required decentralized treatment. My business partner and I actually went up, went off and kind of hung our own shingle uh, in April of last year, um, which feels like, you know, 10 years ago now at this point uh, with all the stuff that's sure. going on. But we, we kind of, saw that where the world or we, we envisioned we saw where the world was moving in terms of decentralization similar in, in, in some respects traced to telecom you know going from landlines to cell phones and energy going from coal-fired power plants to rooftop solar we saw in some respects the water industry moving away from these you know, big centralized municipal treatment plants that it cost a billion dollars and take 15 years to build more towards a reliance on at home or at kind of commercial and industrial locations doing more treatment on site. And so when we started Silmar about a year and a half ago now, we initially were focused on just helping a few of these new decentralized treatment companies do their work. And so that that took the the form of everything from helping a, a company focused on novel solids capture from wastewater to even doing some work with a firm that's doing uh, synthetic biology, basically like engineering microbes to treat things like, you know, say Legionella or perfluorinated compounds, those PFAS compounds that are in Teflon coatings. But as we did that work, uh, kind of we kept coming back to this idea of, you know, when people talk decentralization in the water world, they tend to focus a lot on wastewater reuse or like a Culligan style under sink filter. But as more and more of these water quality regs come out, and, and, and you know, even the, the kind of Legionella ASHRAE recommendations being one of them, 
it became a little bit more more and more clear to us that decentralization thesis actually has already been happening for decades, right? That, that is what water treaters do inherently. They are treating water at the point of need to improve industrial or commercial processes. So we spent the first year of our existence, I think, like most entrepreneurs, right? We, we, we kind of had left with the vision um, and we spent about a year trying to get our feet settled beneath us. And as more and more time went on, we realized just how excited we were about getting back into the weeds, you know, selling, building teams, solving problems, operating systems. And we also tried to figure out, you know, what does, what does Silmar look like 5, 10, 15 years down the road? Which is a tough, I mean, it's a tough thing to try and figure out when you're kind of in it on a day-to-day basis. And so just about around that time, as we you know, were finally lifting our heads up to kind of look around, we actually partnered with a couple of different investors. And the goal there is, you know, Silmar now goes out and buys and builds uh, water and wastewater companies with a very, very long-term focus. So we're not a private equity fund. You know, our goal actually is to run businesses. We're, I'm not a finance guy, I'm a water guy. And so the vision is to kind of run these for you know, decades, if not generations. I, I think similar in some respects to kind of the thesis that a lot of the owners of the Scaling Up Nation have focused on creating something that will last beyond themselves. And so really what, what we do now is, is look for owners uh, of water treatment businesses that have legacy businesses that are looking to kind of transition into the, the next stage of their life and, and want someone that they know and trust to kind of come in and, and operate those businesses for a very long period of time. Well, see, this is very interesting to me because I've been involved with the Association of Water Technologies for some time now. And this has been the age old question. What happens after I build a successful business and either my children don't want it, I don't have any children, employees don't want it, or the employees can't afford it. And now what do I do with this thing that I'm so proud of that I've been spending a lifetime building? So I'm so happy we're talking about this. And in fact, I'm going to mention in episode 127, we had Tom Hutchinson on and he talked about this very thing. So this is a topic that he spoke about at AWT two years ago and then just recently for the virtual convention. So I know there are so many people listening that are either working for companies that have owners that are thinking about what their exit strategy is or people that are actually looking for solutions because they have to do something with this company. So with all that being said, what should everybody be doing about it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a great question, Trace. And, and I think, frankly, I don't have the answer, right? This is a a question that is going to be highly dependent on on the owner and and, and each situation. But I think there are several options that uh, that we've seen out there um, that that will make sense for for uh, for certain owners. And so I guess the, the the first thing I would say is you know, and this is just from me from a personal perspective, right? A, a multi generational business is, is what I'm building myself. Um, and so if or when that is an option for owners, obviously I think that's great. Um, I think the reality of, of the fact is, is, you know, we're in the water treatment world, which, which isn't, you know, quote unquote, the sexiest world of all times. And so sometimes we've seen the next generation that isn't as interested in this business. So, you know, I think if that's the case, right, if, if you don't have the next generation waiting in line, what do you do then? And I think there are a few different buckets that maybe I can just list off that I think will provide a little bit of an overview for owners out there. You know, first, I think there's the private equity world or, or the venture capital world. And these are a group of individuals that typically go out and raise 
some capital from outside financial providers. And their goal is to kind of go in, find interesting businesses. You know, they're, they're, they're typically looking for businesses that have an annual profit of over $5 million, kind of $5 million of EBITDA. But they're looking to create kind of operational and financial value from their acquisitions. So typically what you'll see is certain private equity firms will go in and acquire a few different water treatment businesses, try and scale nationally or just regionally. And they also have very, I'll say, grand expectations for the businesses that they acquire, right? So they typically are looking for kind of hockey stick style growth, meaning, you know, over time, you get kind of an exponential growth of revenue and profit. But they're also looking at relatively short timeframes. So as you, as, you, as you talk with a private equity fund, you should ask, is your fund a, a five-year fund, a seven-year fund, a 10-year fund? Because doing so will help you understand kind of what, is their, what is their vision for this business? Is this something that they're going to you know, cut heads and put on some debt and then seven years down the road sell the business? Or is this something that they're going to run kind of in light of your legacy for a long period of time? The next bucket is what I'll call strategics. And these are the you know great businesses, right? These are the kind of the Nalcos, the chemtreats of the world that are very established national firms do a great job. And, and I think these, these firms have their reputation for a reason, right? They, they run great businesses. They're able to scale businesses once they kind of absorb them into their, into their umbrella. I think, frankly, they're they're typically interested in in larger businesses rather than maybe some of the smaller one to ten person shops. But I think that the the beauty of of working with a strategic is they have success, they have networks. They're going to help your business further solidify or or mature its back end, just in terms of kind of accounting processes and practices. The question always is how will they absorb your business's culture? Uh, that you've worked so hard to develop over the past several decades, and, and how will they absorb your staff who who have been working under this culture for a long period of time? And so that's something just as you have those conversations, it should clearly be a question that you're asking. The third bucket is just more in line of this this idea of seller financing, which is if a third party financial partner isn't available, uh, or, or you want to sell to to your your kids or to trusted employees. There's an opportunity to basically create a structure that maybe there's a little bit of um, upfront money that your employees pay you, but then over the course of three, five, maybe 10 years, you create a contract with your employees to essentially pay you over a period of time for your equity stake in the business. And then lastly, I I think there are, frankly, people like myself uh, and Silmar where we're water operators. We have capital partners that that allow us to go out and, and, and make acquisitions and, and build companies. Um, and we also have indefinite timeframes. So we're, we're not finance people, but we do want to own and operate businesses over the next several decades. And, and I think, you know, frankly, we, we've, I guess, rounded it all off. We've seen a lot of folks uh, in the uh, finance world that have kind of been going around talking to owners and saying that they want to buy your business. And, and I think a question that you as a seller should always ask is, you know, do you as, as this individual, do you have committed capital or do you need to go raise money once you negotiate an initial deal with me? And how experienced are you in running companies in this water industry, right? That, you know, we always talk about water people, right? But it's a serious question of, you know, are you going to take 
12 to 18 months just to figure out, you know, what sodium hypochlorite is? Or are you going to be able to understand kind of how you run a treatment program for a customer? Because I think the concern and some of the, you know, the horror stories, I don't think this is normal, right? Trace, I, I think, you know, we hear the horror stories and, and we always kind of inflate them in our, in our minds. But you want to make sure that you as a seller are also diligencing your buyer. That's almost more important for the future of the company and, and obviously for your legacy is making sure that A, this isn't an individual that's just going to kind of throw you around for 30, 60, 90 days and then walk away. Or, or B, that this isn't someone that's going to you know fire staff because they don't understand how a water treatment program works, but that you're actually finding someone that um, can own and operate your business for the next 30 years and, and do so in a way that will make you comfortable as, as a previous owner. Well, let's unpack a couple of things that you mentioned. One, with the climate going on in the United States, we could be seeing some more gains taxes. So there are a lot of owners that are pulling the trigger sooner rather than later to figure out what they're going to do for the next part of their business. So I think this is very timely. You mentioned a couple of things. One, EBITDA. I want to talk about that because I know there's probably some listeners out there that are wondering what the heck that is. And I know that's a way that we evaluate businesses, but I also know that people will look at revenue and they put, a, they put a multiplier on revenue. So when you're looking at a business, what are some of the ways to evaluate that business? Another great question. You know, every, every investor is going to be a little bit different, but I can talk you, talk you a little bit more about how, how I think about a business. So EBITDA, which is E-B-I-T-D-A, means earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And so the, the easiest way to think about this is, you know, as you're kind of looking at your profit and loss statement or your income statement, you'll have your, your revenues, you'll have your cost of sales or cost of goods sold, and then you'll have your kind of selling general and administrative expenses, which is things like salaries and rent. And once you take revenues and subtract your cost of goods and your revenues, rent, and kind of ongoing operational expenses, that will leave you with uh, your EBITDA number, which is just kind of just another way of standardizing what is the profitability of your business on a quarterly or annual basis. And so as you think about, you know, how do you uh, value or how do I kind of look at companies? There's There's a few different ways. You know, one is kind of what is the standing EBITDA over the last several years, right? 2018, 2019, and, and 2020 is, is a little bit of a strange year, but actually I think, you know, the water treaters of the world, I think one thing we've, we've found is that this is very much a, an essential business. And so we, we've seen a lot of success over the last six months, seven months, even though the world's been a little bit crazy. So we'll look at things like revenue, right? How, how stable is that? Is it growing over time? How stable and is EBITDA growing over time? Is your profitability growing? And other items that we'll always look for is just kind of customer diversification, right? So are you, are you someone who has a great relationship with, you know, a, a pulp and paper mill and have just been working solely with that client for the past 10 years? And that's, that's your entire customer base? Or do you have 100 customers every year that you're servicing? And the the reason why we're interested in that is just, you know, we've seen some folks in, in the water industry that maybe we're just working with malls as of January and February of this year, and then March, April, May were, were very tough for them. And so it's just trying to understand, you know, how how resilient is the business? 
And then I think another kind of component that continues to pop up in our own thought process is how much of the business is focused on equipment sales versus kind of long-term service contracts. And and that just goes to uh, again, you know, as we think about COVID or even even 08, I think we saw some of the same issues of if businesses are heavily reliant on selling systems, selling kind of fabricated skids, um, and not so much on the service component, then in 08 and in 2020, you know, kind of early part of this year, um, were pretty tough uh, parts of the, of the year. And so I, I think our, our goal is always to kind of get an understanding for how healthy is this business? How resilient is this business? And then again, as we think about valuations, uh, you know, Trace, you, you mentioned kind of there's a there's a question of do I value my business based on revenue or do I value based on profitability? And I'll just say it again. I don't necessarily think there's a, a correct answer. Um, I think what what we've seen is, you know, I consider myself a water nerd. So I'm just always kind of tracking new, interesting technologies in the space. We've seen more growth scale technologies, kind of early stage technologies being valued on on a revenue basis, kind of a multiple of your total revenue. While the more stable uh, businesses that have been around and been profitable and been successful for the past decades are valued more on a multiple of of EBITDA, um, and so that's a, that's a small distinction. But I think it's it's one that your that the scale animation should just be aware of as you're thinking about you know, what is my business worth. I think that's a great explanation. I remember reading the Rockefeller Habits by Varn Harnish. And I think he said that revenue was vanity where net was sanity. I like that. I'm going to steal it. <laughs> I'm sure he won't mind. When we get into the numbers and spreadsheets and P&Ls and balance sheets and cash flow statements, I know some people, they, they, their minds just start to wander with that. We're, we're good water treaters. A lot of us don't understand what the numbers are actually telling us. And me consulting with other businesses, one of the first things we do is I'll get them to show me those documents. And I'm not trying to embarrass anybody out there in the water treatment community, but I am surprised at how many companies out there run their businesses off of their checkbook balance. First of all, I, I think it's worked for some people in the past, right? I mean, that, they, they've, they've been living off of, of that checkbook process for, for years. And I, I think, so I think that's great for individual businesses. I think what it, what it lends itself to, though, is, is a little bit of confusion when it comes to making that transition. And so I think that goes back to, you know, as I was running through those buckets of different potential acquirers or partners on the financial side, is making sure that you're choosing a trusted partner. Because I think, as you think about what does my ideal process look like for this transition, there's going to need to be some trust that's created. There's going to need to be some process that starts to kind of make that transition from the checkbook to, a, I'll say, a more formal balance sheet and income statement that a typical investor can look at and really, really get a good feel for the business. Um, and so I, I think that goes to that. That can be a joint process. Obviously, again, you need to choose a trusted partner to make sure that that you're getting a fair shake. But I do think that uh, by choosing correctly, you all can work together to come up with kind of the, the proper valuation, the proper price that somebody would pay for you for, you know, for your baby. Would you agree that the time to start doing that is now and not when you need to sell your business? I would say the time to start doing it is yesterday. Fair enough. Which is, which is more just a, a comment towards that the, the sales process and getting comfortable with your eventual partner is a many year process potentially. And so doing so 
earlier rather than later will make it feel less rushed and make you feel more in control of, of that process as time goes on. I want to make one more comment on your comment on getting your numbers in line. How I think about that is, you know, water treaters are constantly tracking and have logbooks related to how their water treatment is working on a, on a minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, year by year basis. Everyone should also be thinking about kind of the financial background of their business as well in the same way, where you wouldn't just turn off your remote water quality monitoring devices and say, you know, let's see what the TSS is in, in six months, because because who knows what would come come to be in those six months. So I think similarly on the financial side, really getting a hold for how is your business operating on a, on a more routine basis will allow you to kind of further refine and optimize the way you run that business, just like you kind of run a chiller or a boiler or a cooling tower. It really is amazing what information you can get from having good, strong numbers. And when you start tracking those, you're able to see if you make a change in your business, how all those numbers are impacted. So if, if you haven't been convinced yet to get your numbers in order, I hope this dialogue today has helped you consider go ahead and getting that done today. Now, let me ask, there are a bunch of people out there that myself included, we get continuous emails or voicemails from people saying, hey, we want to buy your company. Half of them aren't serious. Half of them are fishing for market information. So when we get that phone call, we get that email, what should we do? And that's a great question, right? Sometimes owners have a, have a choice of, you know, do I want to run my business or do I want to talk to brokers and investors all day? And I understand that the former uh, should always win. And so I think the, the thing that, that folks can do kind of on a, on a near-term basis is, is first just kind of go do, a, go do a quick five to 10 minute search on the website of that individual, right? Learn about their mission, their vision, their values. Learn about, you know, is this a water person or is this someone that's just coming in to try and find a business to run um, and, and likely will need a lot of handholding in order to get to a, a successful place? So I think that's that's kind of the first step is just, you know, does this pass your BS sniff test based on looking at the website? I think after that, which will probably help you and and, and trace, you know, based on your comments, sounds like, you know, probably help you weed out about 95% of the people. I think then getting on a phone call for 30 minutes, right? Keep, keeping it almost intentionally short for a first call, just to allow yourself and, and the potential acquirer to or investor to introduce themselves, get a feel for them as as people, quiz them on like what do you know about my business, what do you know about my industry, and and why are you reaching out to me today? And so I, I think there, and again, this is you know for individuals that are looking to sell today, there's a there's a way of doing things, and for those that are looking to sell ten years from now, there's a way of doing things as well. But I think from from my perspective, you know, having the conversations with that top five percent of potential partners is really helpful just to kind of keep in your Rolodex or keep in your LinkedIn as the individuals that you would want to reach out to as you think about this a little bit more seriously down the road. Now, during that conversation, how much information should we be giving to that person? It depends on how comfortable you are. You know, I, I, I come from a place where, you know, uh, a handshake is more important than a contract. But I also understand kind of the sensitivities around customer relationships, uh, financial information. So actually, I, I always tell owners that I talk to, to, to not share very much information at first, 
to get a better feel for that potential investor. Don't tell anyone you know, your, your revenue or your, or your EBITDA or kind of who your customers are necessarily upfront, unless you want to, of course. But wait until you kind of get a better indication for who is the other person on the other end of the line. And where you should start feeling more comfortable is um, once you get a non-disclosure agreement into place, what it's called an NDA. So once you get an NDA in place with that investor, they're kind of legally bound not to share any of the information that you pass along to them. So um, that, that's kind of a, a two-step process of one, get a feel for them as a person. And then if you think it's worth speaking to further and you want to share some more information to potentially get a kind of an estimate of what, what they might be willing to spend or pay for your business, then make sure that you get an NDA into place, get them to sign it, you countersign it, and then you can start sending a little bit more information over time to them so that they can get a better feel for the business and, and maybe give you some numbers to think about. That's great advice. I can think that there's probably two top concerns on every owner's mind that is considering selling. One is, can I get enough money for my business so I can take care of my family during my retirement or whatever the next venture is going to be? And two, what about all these key employees that have helped me build this business? How do I take care of them? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is something where when you run a business over the course of decades, kind of all of your capital and and net worth and you know frankly your retirement fund is kind of built into that business. And so I, as you think about you know, what is the next step for me, there's two general paths you can take, right? There's the I'm going to sell my entire business, 100% of it and walk away and, and be able to care for for myself and and my family. Number 2 is selling a portion of the business or uh, uh, even if it's a majority or over time selling more and more to employees. So that's kind of a, I'll say a minority sale to start. But as you think about you know, how do I, quote unquote, you know, monetize my re- retirement fund, and this is the age old question. And so you know, there's, there's a couple of ways to do it. One is just go out and find that third party financial company, the private equity fund, the Silmar group, the strategic of the world. Um, and get them to pay for your business and, and you know, find the right partner to make sure that they're going to treat your employees well and live up to the legacy that you've created. And on the kind of the latter part, on the minority side, you know, there's a lot of ways that owners can be creative in terms of making sure that that they will be taken care of, right? So there's selling selling equity, right? selling a portion of the business. But there's also ways where you can, you know, stay on as an employee or as a consultant if you're if you're uh, transitioning to empl- uh, to your other employees or to the next generation. There are ways that you can create seller financing contracts where, like I said earlier, you know, you're creating a contract where your employees will pay you for your equity over a period of time from the profits of the business. And then I, I guess another thing that you know I, I never really like to recommend because depending on who the owner is, they, they they may or may not be super comfortable with it. But you know, going out and these businesses, you know, your businesses tend to not have very much debt on them at all. You know, debt is sometimes a, a dirty word in our business. Um, but in some some places and some times, uh, taking on a little bit of debt to help the business kind of buy you out and give you some some money to go live off of and then pay that debt back over time through profits. That is something that a lot of folks have had some success with doing when those debt levels are not too high, right? You have, you have to make sure you're being smart about it, but does provide a, a way to kind of create some additional cash flow, additional liquidity for you to make that transition. 
Now, what about the key employees that people are concerned? I want to keep these key people that have helped me build the business employed. And maybe now this person in this company who's selling, they're not going to be around. It's a complete buyout. How do they set those people up for success? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, this is a great question and, and one that I always go back to thinking about myself of how do you choose the right partner to ensure that they're going to kind of continue the, the livelihood and the business that is being built and run by your employees? Because I think in some respects, employees are your second family. And so this goes back to the question of, you know, who do you want to select from, you know, the, the, the many different financial partners that are available to you? And how do you select the right partner that is going to kind of build on your legacy rather than kind of build against your legacy? And so it's a little bit of ensuring that you have wastewater people running the business, that you introduce them to your employees at the right time, kind of get buy-in from the team and, and ensure that even during kind of after the sale, maybe there is kind of a several week or several month transition process for you to get the new owners up to speed on how to run the business and get the employees on board with, you know, these are the right people to kind of lead the next, the next phase of my company. Michael, when is the right time to get these key employees involved so they know that you are preparing to sell? I think it depends a little bit on, on your, your relationship with your employees. I tend to be a, a pretty transparent guy, like to keep people in the loop, not like to necessarily surprise folks that this is coming down the road. But I also understand there's a little bit of sensitivity or a lot of sensitivity related to this topic. And so I think, it again, it depends a little bit on the owner and his or her relationship with those employees. We've had, you know, in the conversations that, um, that, that I've had, a lot of owners are, you know, with, uh, you know, 10, 15 employees, just kind of tell everybody, hey, I'm 65, I'm, I'm looking to start transitioning out, just so you know, you might see some folks coming around, kicking the tires on a, you know, monthly basis, just to see who that ideal partner is. And that works well for some people. I think on the other side, there, there's always the, the, the concern from owners that employees will leave if they see the business being transitioned to somebody else or just kind of inherently skeptical. And so I think uh, I wish I had an answer for you, Trace, but I think it's going to depend a lot on kind of the company culture and the owner's relationships with employees for when they think is the right time to, to tell folks that this is something that they are thinking about. Now, as people are planning for this, obviously, the further out, the more organized and the more time that they have. But how would their to-do list change from, let's say, somebody who has 10 years that they're looking to transition to, I need to get out tomorrow? You know, I I always like to think about this transition period in kind of a 10-year, five-year, and one-year process. And really, getting owners ready for that sales process is a is a progression. And I think one of the things that that I always come back to kind of more from my my operational days is thinking through the the both the financial and the operational decisions that need to be made in order to have that successful sales process. I, I think some owners, because it's hard to do both, choose one or the other. But when you're thinking about the financials, right, it's, it's getting getting your books in order, getting your numbers in order. And it's also about when you're thinking about a financial partner, getting the right cultural fit. You know, all these owners out there have probably talked to various investors that talk about this, you know, due diligence process, right? And due diligence is when you're thinking through like, what does the accounting look like? What do your customer contracts look like? How do you make business? 
And I think something that, that gets short thrift every once in a while is, are you a good cultural fit with my business? Are you going to be able to kind of fit yourself seamlessly into the operations of this company and grow it over time with respect to you know, how we've been running for the past three decades? That's one on the financial side. On the operational side, owners typically are the best water treaters, the best salespeople, and the best kind of customer service individuals at a company. Uh, and while that's great, it also kind of lends itself to a potential situation when that owner departs, you know, who is going to take on that sales, service, and customer relationship piece. And so, you know, as I think about it, you know, 10 years from retirement, start promoting employees into management positions, right? Managing a, a business and a team is very different than running service on a cooling tower. It's a, it's a, it's a different half of your brain. It's a different skill set. And begin ensuring that you're just doing knowledge transfer, whether it's with sales or treatment or chemicals to those employees. I also think you know, we are in an industry that has a lot of ambitious growth plans. And so when you're 55, or you're 60, and you're thinking about retirement 10 years down the road, I think owners also need to think about what is the type of business that I want to pass along to this investor, to this, this next owner. And the reason being is, 10 years from now, you know, you have to decide about what are my growth plans? You know, am I going to expand regions? Am I going to expand technologies? Because you need to understand the risk reward profile for making that expansion as you think about who that next owner will be in a decade. Five years from the sale, I think beginning to more actively transition sales and, and vendor relationships to other employees, just to try and minimize that risk of, of certain items being lost in the shuffle getting your numbers in order. And I think really five years for a sale is when you should start maybe answering more of those emails, Trace, or, or having more phone calls with the, the folks that are reaching out to you in order to kind of do, start doing your own diligence on who is the right capital partner for me. And kind of within that, within that five-year bucket as well, an investor typically, uh, it's always different, but an investor typically will look at the previous three years of, of your financials. So that making sure that as you think about selling five years down the road, really the, the three years prior to is an ex especially important piece. And nowadays, investors are looking to see you know, how COVID-proof is your business. Is this something that uh, had a big drop off in March, April, May, or is it something that was truly resilient? And then one year, uh, you know, now you know, you, you've spent nine years kind of getting ready for this while also running your business, right? So uh, you should have everything basically in order. But a year from sale is really when you need to, to start reaching back out and, and finding those, that right capital partner. J just for the owners on, 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 the, on, the, on the podcast, a typical sales process, even when you're ready to go, is a six to nine month process. Right? There, there's, there's three months of talking to people, getting bids, getting letters of intent, and then you know, maybe even six months. And then once you get that letter of intent, once you kind of sign and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to bind myself to this valuation, this is interesting to me, then the owner or the, the new owner or the new investor will likely want to spend an initial two to three months really diving into the business, doing kind of a, a thorough review of your financials and your accounting and your legal before they can truly kind of send you a check. And so just as a reminder, this is not a next day process and opportunity. But I, I think for both parties, both for yourselves and for the new investors, thinking about this as a six to nine month process is really important. 
You've done a great job setting up the logistics, telling us about the process. Do you mind telling us a narrative about how you've experienced this through one of your customers? Yeah, absolutely. We come at this again as, as kind of water and wastewater people. And so as we talk to our potential acquisitions, you know, we tend to really harp on this concept of being water people, right? And so our, our initial calls, whether it's a 30-minute call, 45, 60-minute call, I'd say 95% of it is just talking water, talking the industry, trying to both get a feel for, you know, is this owner looking to sell now? Are they just dipping their toe in the water? Are they looking to find the right capital partner 10 years down the road? And from our perspective, I, I think we're trying to show how we view kind of the future of Silmar as being something where we have no desire to, you know, cut employee relationships or we have no desire to load up companies with debt and sell them in five years. Our, our goal is to run healthy businesses over the course of, of decades. And so that kind of leads me to, you know, how is it like working with a third party as a capital provider? And I think it goes back to it's very dependent on the type of partner you choose, right? There's, like I said, private equity, there's the strategics, there's operating partners like myself, there's kind of the seller financing path. And your process will be very different across both the size of your company, but also who you choose as a capital partner. You know, what I always recommend is there's there's informal processes where, you know, owners just run this themselves. And then there's formal processes where you, know, you always hear about investment brokers that are kind of going and running up a, a process where they're going to bring you a bunch of different buyers and take on different bids. Um, I think that's that's great for some of the larger companies. I mean, you've probably heard of some of those companies doing that in the past. I think candidly and honestly, for the smaller companies, you know, going out and running more of an informal process where you respond to some of those emails or or you reach out to maybe some of the investors that that your friends in the water treatment space have taken investment from in the past and reaching out to them is really important. And so, you know, how do you get started? First of all, just make sure your business is in a good place, right? Make sure that your accounting and your numbers is in order. Make sure that your customers are happy. If there's any extensions coming up on service contracts, make sure that those are in order before you start thinking about selling. And then, you know, a typical process. So I've thrown a lot around a lot of different dates and timeframes, and and it's probably a a little bit confusing uh, in some respects. But if you think about what is the process that I need to take in order to get to a, a final signed agreement. It's have your initial conversations, kind of get a feel for who these investors are. Sign an NDA. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll repeat that. Sign an NDA before you start sending sensitive information. Once you sign the NDA, you, you'll probably get a, an initial list of questions from your investor or from the, from the folks that you're talking to that, that range from like, show me how much revenue you have, show me some customer contracts, if you have any intellectual property or you're kind of having licenses for technology, they'll probably want to see those. And then once that happens, there'll likely will be a, a document submitted, basically like an indication of interest. And this is what investors just it's like a fancy term for basically saying, I'm going to send you a document that says, based on all the information I have today, this is what I think is a range of valuations for your business. Right. And so you can go lower, it can go higher just based on once they do their, their more full deep dive into, into your document. Once that happens, if, if you choose to move forward after that point, right? if you think you're getting a fair, a fair shake and a fair price, then people will, these investors likely will come to your, to your office, have what are called management meetings, basically you know, 
kicking the tires, talking to employees, if that's something you're comfortable with, getting a better feel for you know, what is the actual space and making sure, frankly, it's a, it's a real business, a real company. And then after that, you get your letter of intent, with, which provides basically a, you know, this is the number I as an investor am willing to pay for this business. And if that is something that you're comfortable with, I think is a fair shake, then there's, uh, you, know, you sign that and essentially have 60 to 90 days uh, with that investor to have exclusivity to do kind of a, a more thorough legal financial accounting uh, due diligence process before the, the final agreement and, and check is signed. So that that is a, uh, I'll say a, a rough process, right? Every, every diligence process is going to be a little bit different. But as you are thinking as an owner about you know, what are the steps that I need to take, uh, I think that's a, a good summation for, uh, for your reference in the back of your head. I can't help but thinking there's probably some service technicians listening to this episode, and this can make them nervous. What can we say to them so they can feel more powered in this situation? First and foremost, you're not alone. This industry is chock full of people who came up in the water space in the 70s and 80s. And I think everyone right now is trying to figure out not if they should retire, but how. And so in, in many cases, you know, these businesses have been your, you know, your, your second marriage or your, your baby, your legacy for the past several decades. And you're looking for someone that is going to be a good partner that I think kind of needs to check off three boxes, right? You, you want someone that's not going to run your business in the ground. You want someone that's going to respect your customers and, and you want someone that's going to grow the business. The, the message that I put forward is it's, it's a hard process to find that right partner, but it shouldn't be scary. Because I, I think it always comes back to, you don't have to make a decision you don't want to make. Um, and if you don't think that this is the right financial partner, you should walk away and you should continue looking or, or take a step back and, and reassess how you want to find that partner. And frankly, I think there are enough folks in the water treatment space that have been through this process that you've run into an AWT conference in the past that can probably give you some really good advice. I mean, Frankly, you're all welcome to reach out to me for just some, uh, you know, hopefully unbiased advice as well. But I think the the key takeaway is you don't have to do anything you want to do. Find the right partner, spend the right time, and that will lead you to the best result. Do you ever think we'll see a water treatment company being pitched on Shark Tank? <laughs> I, I've been waiting for it. I I, uh, I think Mark Cuban would be an excellent partner. I agree, <laughs> but I'm not so sure. If someone wants to find out more information about you, where should they go? First, go to my website, www.silmargrp.com. For Silmar Group, it's S as in Sam, Y, L, M as in Michael, A, R, G, R, P as in Peter.com. So feel free to, to go to my website. My email address and my partner's uh, email address is there. Feel free to reach out at any time. I'll make sure to have that on my show notes page. Great information on today's episode. I do have a few more questions for you left if you're ready for the lightning round. I can't wait. All right. So I ask these questions of all my guests and then, of course, members of the Scaling Up Nation get to wager to see how well that my guests do. So no pressure at all. <laughs> First question. Uh, you've heard me ask it. I'm going to ask it to you in two ways because uh, you've been a water treater and now you're somebody that helps uh, find the, the, the right way for somebody to transition their company. So my question is, you can go back to your first day, one as a water treater, 
And then as your first day as doing what you're doing now, what advice would you give yourself respectively? Uh, that's a great question. And actually, I'm, I'm going to say it's the same answer for both. My advice to you know my you know twenty year old self is just talk to everybody. I didn't grow up in the industry, right? And a lot of water treaters did, but from my perspective, I didn't grow up. My you know my my folks were uh, in the healthcare space, um, and I think I have learned far more from just picking up the phone or reaching out on an email or reaching out on LinkedIn to water treaters than I've learned ever in a classroom or even in my kind of day to day work life. I always kind of go back to, I've asked a lot of stupid questions in my life, but I've been stupid to not ask questions a lot of times as well. And so I think uh, I would just say, you know, make sure you're learning from the people with more experience than yourself, because doing so is going to be uh, basically provide you with the biggest benefit that you can get. What are the last few books that you've read? Okay. Uh, I read Angle of Repose by Wallace Stegner which won a couple of book awards. I was actually uh, I was actually camping with my wife in Colorado in July and was looking for just kind of a, a book on the West and went into a bookstore and, and, and said those words. And the, the bookshop owner basically said, you need to read Angle of Repose. So highly recommend. It's not a quick read, but it's a, it's a fascinating book just on, on kind of the expansion into the West. Put on my, my water hat, um, I read The Source, which is a book that was written by Martin Doyle, who's a professor at the Duke Nicholas School for the Environment. He's actually uh, someone that I've had a, a long relationship with and uh, is actually an advisor to Silmar. But the source basically tries to explore the relationship between humans and water over the past several hundred years w- with a couple of different examples, which I thought was really good. And then before that, actually, I'll, I'll kind of just refer back to, to my Kansas self. Uh, I read a book called Heartland by Sarah Smarsh, and it's an autobiography uh, by, I think she was actually running for office at at a certain point, but it's about a a woman who kind of grew up on a farm just outside of Wichita, Kansas, and just kind of her uh, path of growing up, her relationships with her parents and grandparents, and and just kind of uh, the Midwestern life, which um, I I always like to, to read about. When they make a movie about your life, who plays you? Other than you, Trace? I didn't know I was up for that role. <laughs> no, I, I'll say um, I uh, I love for whatever reason I love the movie The Social Network about uh, the rise of Facebook, and so I always used to make a joke that one day they'll make a movie called The Water Network. Uh, obviously, after I get on Shark Tank, <laughs> um, so so would love uh, Jesse Eisenberg to play me if, if he's not too old at that point. There you go. And then my uh, my almost last question because I wrote a special bonus question just for you. You now have the ability to go back in time and speak with anybody you would like throughout history, who to be with and why. It's a good question. There's a lot, there's a lot of presidents and international leaders that I think would be interesting. But I think my mind first goes to, now I've always kind of thought of myself as, as someone who, who kind of likes to take risks, go places where other folks won't go. Like I said, I, I bought myself a one-way t- ticket to China to start my career. And so I, actually, I think the person that I think would be the most fascinating would be Neil Armstrong. I, I love the idea of exploring new things, both kind of literally or figuratively stepping into a place that no one's been before, kind of like the conquistadors or explorers of the past. And so I think Neil Armstrong going to the moon really kind of personified a, a special form of bravery 
both in terms of just like his his own risk that he took, but also in terms of you know doing something that would help move humanity forward. So if you uh, made me guess, say anybody, I think that would be the first conversation I'd love to have. I love that answer. He is one of my heroes. I was actually able to hear him speak at the Huntsville Rocket Center once, and just a, a culmination of humbleness and brilliance. Uh, just an incredible person. Couldn't say it better myself. Absolutely. Well, here's my bonus question for you. So since you are fluent in Chinese and there are listeners of the Scaling Up Nation over in China, how do you say thank you for listening to Scaling Up H2O? <laughs> I'll have to take your word for it. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know we've helped a lot of people today and thanks for all your knowledge. Trace, thanks again for having me. Looking forward to talking with folks and, and providing that unbiased advice if or when they need it. And uh, thanks again for having me on the show. It was a pleasure. Nation, there's just so much you need to know when you are looking at the next act of your life. And let me say that I'm not ready for the second act yet. I mentioned that at the top of the show, but all this information I use and I'm getting ready so that way I know when I am ready. I, I get better information so I can make better decisions. I do know that there are many, many companies out there that are looking to transition the ownership of their company. And that's why I wanted to make sure that I got this episode out in 2020. I also know by working with several water treatment companies as a consultant and helping them work with their numbers, that many of the companies out there simply do not have a plan. They do not know what they need to know to navigate through all the decisions that they need to make when it's time to sell their companies. And there's a proverb that states the best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago. The second best time is today. So with that, what can you do to start getting your finances in order? You know, something that one of my mentors taught me years ago was he wanted me to have an answer to what my magic number is. Now, this isn't the number that you play in the lottery. This is the number that if somebody were to offer you this amount of money for your company, you would say, you are on target. We need to have this conversation. Now, we still need to make sure that the company that's buying your company is a cultural fit. But just think, if you had all this information in your head and you knew what that number was and somebody was close to it, that's a conversation that you are going to want to start. Knowing this magic number allows you to make all sorts of decisions, not just, am I going to talk to this person about buying my company, but years before selling your company, it allows you to make decisions on how you're going to grow, what equipment you're going to acquire, what people you are going to hire, because you know what this company, what the number needs in order for you to move on to the second act when a company says they want to buy you or an employee comes to you and says, I would like to buy you out, you now have the framework to have those conversations. I cannot stress enough how important it is to get your financials in order today. 
I mentioned in the interview, I work with a lot of water treatment companies, helping them become better water treatment companies. And I am so surprised at how many water treatment company owners run their companies out of their checkbook. They figure they've got money in their checking account so they know that they can buy things. They can make payroll. Folks, there's so much more that your accounting, that your numbers can tell you that will give you solid information about exactly what's happening with your company that allow you to make decisions on that information. Now, imagine if you were at a ball game and they weren't keeping score, no stats. How boring would that be? Well, a lot of us are running our companies that way. And folks, if you are doing that, you are not navigating through all of the information that you should have. You're making guesses and maybe you're getting lucky sometime, but why risk that? When you have all of that information in line, you can make better decisions. And if G.I. Joe taught us anything, he taught us that knowing is half the battle. And the more we know, the better decisions that we are going to make. And I know from working with companies that when we start talking about financials, some people just gloss over and they stop listening. We all know that the better financials we have, the better we can make decisions. But when we're the ones that have to do that, a lot of us don't like that. I'm going to be the first to admit I am not wired correctly. I love financial data. I love data of all types because it gives me information that I can do something with. I can then change one of the inputs via one of the decisions that I'm going to make, and I can see what the result is going to be based on that. But I know not everybody out there is like me. So having someone on your team that can do that kind of stuff is key. And I want to stress, a lot of times when you are the owner of a business, you feel like you have to be everything to everybody. And folks, that is not the case. Figure out what you are good at. Figure out what you do better than anybody else. And if you stay in that sweet spot, you are going to lead your company and your people to tremendous success. But what that means is you also need people to help you with your blind spots. And it's okay to have them if you have people that can do the work that you can't. And that's why you align yourself with individuals that are skilled in the areas that you aren't. And that's why I have a part-time CFO on my staff. And that's right, I said a part-time CFO. I don't think it is a position for our company size that merits having somebody on our payroll for full-time. However, the wisdom that I get from this individual that all he does is numbers, folks, he sees things that I am never going to see. And he does not live in Atlanta. He is not staffed in our office. He logs in remotely. He has access to our financials. And on a regular basis, I meet with him to learn more about the numbers that I'm actually producing. And it is amazing what he can see, the things he can point out, the things he can forecast. And by knowing these numbers and sharing those things with me, 
I am able to make better decisions. He might actually see something that I would have never seen. Give me some advice. And that is that one domino that's going to knock all the other dominoes down. I can't tell you how awesome that relationship is. So if you're interested in something like that, I know it can be scary because I have gone through it. So here's what I've done. I've created a trusted advisors network. And on that trusted advisors network, you can see I have some part-time CFOs that can do the same services for you because they're doing them for me. Now, with that, I've worked with them. I've explained to them some ins and outs of the water treatment industry. So they have a basic understanding of what it is that we do, what it is that we need help for. And I have vetted these people out for you to make the process a little bit easier. Let's face it, this is scary. I'm trying to take some of the scare out of it. So if this is something that sounds interesting to you, you can go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash TA as in trusted advisor. Again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash TA. And you can see the individuals that I am working with to see if they could be a good fit for you. Now, if you are working with somebody like this and you are getting all this information together, you will know when the right person comes along, when the right deal comes along. And if it is time to sell, you'll have all your ducks in a row and you'll be able to make better decisions. Now, let me talk to the people out there that don't own the companies you work for. And folks, let me tell you, you are the backbone of those companies. And I know the podcast today could be a little bit scary, but I don't want you to look at that because everybody will retire eventually. I know you have dreams of retiring, but maybe you also have dreams of buying the company that you work for. Now, I've consulted with companies, and normally when I do, I ask people what their exit strategy is. And they say, well, they hope to sell the company. I'll ask them who they're going to sell it to. They don't know. I ask them if they have any employees. They say they don't know. Now, the funny thing is, is when I talk to other employees, I'll then find out that they have dreams of owning the company someday, but those two parties never came together. So they're never going to accomplish that goal. So I'm going to ask you to take the first step and let your boss know that, hey, someday, I don't know if it's possible, I don't know how to do it, but I would like to work with you to see, could I possibly purchase this company someday? And if you guys are both working to the same goal, it's amazing of all the things that will come together. So I know that's a scary step, but if it is something that interests you, you need to take that step because eventually you may not be able to take that step. It's going to be too late. I mentioned on last week's episode that we have a lot of new things planned for you in 2021. I'm so excited about all this stuff. I know you guys are going to love it. A lot of them came from ideas from you, the Scaling Up Nation. So thank you for that. And as always, keep those coming. 
But we also have a lot of things that we did this year in 2020 that worked pretty well. And we're going to keep those things around. One of those items was the hang. We started doing the after hours hang as the solution of how we were going to network with the AWT since we weren't going to be in person. And we had hundreds of people join in on the after hours hang where we talked a little bit about the convention and we also got to meet new people. It was great. I got a lot of positive feedback. I got positive feedback from the Association of Water Technologies, and they said, Trace, can you and your team help us make this a regular thing? Of course, we said yes. We just had one two weeks ago. It was equally successful, and we're going to have another one coming up January 14th. So mark your calendars, January 14th at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Now, you might be wondering what you need to do to register for the hang. Well, it's very easy. You go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash hang, H-A-N-G. You register, you will get an email and then you click on that email and it goes right into your calendar with all of the login credentials. Folks, we use Zoom. We all meet in a big room. I do a couple of things to try to entertain you for a few moments. I'll let you know a couple of things about what's going on in the water treatment community. And then I give you some instructions. I give you a couple of questions that you are going to ask to your new group. And I will get you started with uh, maybe even an icebreaker, if you will. Then I will put you into about five people in each group where you can introduce yourself, figure out what everybody does, ask each other the questions that I have laid out for you. And folks, the cool thing is, is you're gonna meet new people in your industry. Maybe someone that can help you with an issue that you've been having. So I urge you to go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash hang to register for the next hang, which will be January 14th at 6 p.m. I would love to see you there. Another new thing that we are doing next year is we are working with the AWT to provide quarterly special business owner related webinars. Now, due to the restrictions on the meetings that we have with COVID, We're not allowed to get so many people in particular rooms in certain areas. So the AWT decided they are not hosting the business owners meeting as they regularly do in first quarter. They're going to do it the day before the annual convention. Now, in speaking with many of you out there in the Scaling Up Nation, I know that many of you look forward to being at this owners meeting the first quarter of every year. So AWT, the Association of Water Technologies, and my staff got together, and we have decided that every quarter, we are going to conduct together a special business owners webinar where we are going to give you special business owners topics each and every quarter. Now, these are going to be topics on things about your health, your business health, your team's health, alignment with your team. And even a special workshop designed to get your financial numbers better. So a lot of the things that we talked about here today, we're going to take you through a workshop so you can do that very thing. In fact, I have invited Michael to come back 
and lead one of those workshops to talk about how do we evaluate our companies. It's great when we're going through the process, but what if we were to do it right now and then we were able to make better decisions on all of the things that we have to make decisions on as business owners? So I promise each and every webinar will include something that will bring your company further faster. It will have something that you can take away with you so you can immediately put into action. I know that these webinars are going to help make your 2021 one of the best years ever. I'm so excited about 2021, but there's still plenty of 2020 to enjoy and I really hope that you make the most of the weeks that we have left in 2020. Next week's episode is a special episode. It will be released on Christmas. So Merry Christmas, Scaling Up Nation. I hope you have had a great year. I hope you have a Merry Christmas and I hope you have a great week. Take care, everybody. Nation, I know many of you have gone to the scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind page and see that our cost is maybe a deterrent. Well, folks, I want to let you know about some of the benefits that you get from being a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind. And instead of me telling you about that, I'm going to have my friend Jill Cavano tell you about her experience. The value that I've gotten out of the Rising Tide Mastermind has been tenfold. Um, initially, like I said, I wasn't sure it was going to be worth the time or the money. Um, I couldn't have been more wrong. The value that I've gotten out of it is um, not feeling so isolated as a small business owner, especially during this year of 2020. I've gotten friendships out of it, networking opportunities, and we've read a lot of books together and worked on a lot of topics that were near and dear to people's hearts. And I've gotten a lot of personal growth. I've gotten ideas for my business, how to make it better and more profitable. Um, and it's also nice because everyone thinks that they are the only one with a certain problem. And I've learned that I am not the only one. So anytime anyone brings an issue to the group for us to discuss, you know, that could very well have been an issue that I wanted to discuss. So I, I like being able to give people advice and I can also use the advice for myself. Scaling Up Nation, there's no doubt about it. Being a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind is an investment. It's an investment in money, but it's also an investment in time. As you just heard from Jill, if you are a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind and you do all the things that you are supposed to be doing as a member, the cost becomes negligible. In fact, it pays for itself. Now, you do have to manage your time, but one of the things that we will talk about is making sure you're keeping a proper calendar. And folks, when you can schedule something, you can plan for something, you can get those things done. So is the Rising Tide Mastermind the right group for you? Well, I don't know, but I hope you will investigate it to see if it is. And you can do that by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind, you can read about the mastermind group. And if that sounds like something you want to be a part of, go ahead and click the apply button. 
and you can set up a call with me where we can talk about specifics about you becoming a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind.